Amen. The book of Proverbs helps us evaluate what is good and better. We've got life under the sun. Here we are on a fallen world. And we are surrounded by and affected inwardly by sin. And we need the kind of discernment the book of Proverbs gives us to evaluate what is better. We need this kind of help. And the reason comes down to the fact that we can't trust the instincts of our hearts like we wish we could. Our instincts are affected by sin. Now, does that mean that someone in a fallen world can't ever make a right decision? Well, of course not. That's not what we imply. We are saying that the barometer of wisdom and flourishing for our lives and others' lives is not the standard of our own hearts. We can't just follow our heart. And to speak that way is very counterintuitive. A recent book um, called Generations, reflecting on um, church life around various generations and the differences with Gen Z right now growing up around us, it it, it compares and contrasts some of the uh, youngest generation's pursuits and priorities with other generations that have preceded them. And the language in the culture of you doing you and you just get what's yours and the individual emphasis has borne fruit, not because it arose with this generation that is coming up, but because for generations that has been the trajectory. And so we would not be surprised that there is a lack of interest in various social and communal engagements and flourishing even within churches in the United States Instead, we find the fruit of following your own heart being the kind of thing that doesn't produce love of God and love of neighbor toward one another, but instead becomes a very self-focused way of living. And the book of Proverbs pushes hard against this. The, The idea that your own heart becomes the barometer for what's going to be better and good for you is a form of the self-delusion that sets in with sin's effects in our lives. We are not the best judge with our instincts always of what is best. So you know what we need is we need help. We need instruction from outside. And Proverbs knows not everybody's going to want that. The opening of the book sets the tone. There are going to be some people who reject wisdom. They don't want instruction. They don't want guidance from outside themselves because their instinct is that they will know what is best and they will know what to do and they want to be left alone. Thank you very much. What Proverbs helps us do then is evaluate from the outside looking upon our lives with the lens of God's word what is good and better in life under the sun. This better than saying in verse 16 is matched by another better than saying at the end of our unit, verse 19. And then the two in the middle, verses 17 and 18, are going to talk about the upright and the proud. What is it that their lives lead to? And so the contrast between 17 and 18 with the upright and the proud are framed in verses 16 and 19 with these better than statements. If you were to ask our culture and do a widespread poll, what is it that you want when you grow up? What are some of your goals? Well, one of the most common on such a poll would be, well, I want to have a lot of money. I want to have a lot of money. I want to be able to do what I want and have the money to pay for it. And so I need, I need wealth. I need wealth. And Proverbs, knowing this, says, okay, but let me tell you what's better. 
And the way that Proverbs helps us think is it complicates the matter by testing what we ultimately are ambitious for. And in verse 16, he puts out gold and silver. Okay, so there's that. And if you were to say, well, do you want gold or silver or do you want to have nothing? Well, the the answer between those things is, well, in order to live and to live generously and to be stewards of God's um, gifts and blessings, then having those material possessions is going to be a means toward that end. The wisdom of Solomon is to complicate it for you. (laughs) The wisdom of Solomon is to say, okay, we're not just talking about gold and silver, though. Let's put that on the table. And then next to it, let's put wisdom and understanding. So that looking at wisdom and understanding and silver and gold, you say, now, which of these is better? And the instinct might be, from a worldly perspective, well, gold and silver, obviously, we need those things. You might be able to conclude, though, that gold and silver in the hands of a fool might not be gold and silver for very long. That, in fact, what is needed in order to rightly work with integrity and faithfulness to accrue gold and silver, uh, to be able to provide and sustain and to give and all the rest, what's needed beyond all of that is something non-material. So that the non-material thing is the essential beneath the material. He's highlighting here, wisdom is better. Wisdom and understanding are these two catchwords in the book of of Proverbs. Uh, We see these words throughout these opening chapters of Proverbs 1 to 9. It is a major, major theme. To highlight this, this very emphasis that this passage gives us, we go to Proverbs 2 for a moment. In Proverbs 2, he says... Making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. And verse 4, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. Meaning that wisdom matters so much that it's better to get wisdom and understanding with the kind of zeal for it like you were searching for actual gold. I've given you the illustration before that if you found out there was a bunch of hidden treasure in your backyard, you might not even wait for the whole service to end tonight before you were already recruiting some folks, and I might be willing to help you, in fact. And we would go and we'd try to find this hidden treasure that is reliably located in your backyard or front yard or wherever. Um, we do want to recognize here that in Proverbs 2, the desire to unearth something valuable is put relatively beneath The greater wisdom, understanding, which is itself a treasure. It is more valuable than silver and gold. More valuable. There's a documentary that's been released on a football player named Johnny Manziel. And Johnny Manziel played for Texas A&M and he played for the Cleveland Browns. And during this documentary, he makes a statement. He says, I had every single thing I could have ever wanted. And when I got everything I wanted, I think I was the most empty I've ever felt inside. Which is an incredibly penetrating disclosure. Because he's not speaking as a believer here. But rather looking at all the worldly success and fame that he thought, getting this, surely. And he said, I've never felt more empty in getting everything I wanted. How much better to get wisdom in gold? than gold, to get understanding, to be chosen better and rather than silver. We just got to believe the Bible here. We got to recognize that scripture is not misleading us, that our hearts can be deceived to think, well, you know, getting silver and gold above all, that might not make everybody happy, but my goodness, I know that my soul and my heart would be set. Instead, 
let's remind ourselves we're not wiser than the Bible. Instead, we should be pursuing wisdom because it is instrumental as the non-material essential behind everything else. I think this should affect the way we talk about the future with young people especially. When we, when we encourage them in their work and when we ask them about what they want to do when they grow up. Uh, and parents in our homes, when we're having conversations with little ones about, about what to pursue and what to buy, I wonder if we could unintentionally un, but subtly imbibe the reality that, hey, you just kind of make sure you just get a lot of money. Make sure you can really pursue this or that. Where maybe we don't mean to put it such, but that functionally we're, we're sort of pushing that, listen, what you need to hope for is you need to, you need to get a, a really high income. Our culture certainly wants us to think about getting money and getting it as fast as we can, keeping it for as long as we can, getting as much as we can along the way. It's all about gold and silver. And in verse 16, may the wisdom of the Bible recalibrate our desire to say, but do you want what's better than that? It requires you to, first of all, believe that wisdom is better for you to desire to pursue it because you will live your life according to what you think is the best situation. What's the better uh, deal? What, what's the, the better priority? What you think will bring the desired outcome for you. So what is it you're wanting? And if you're wanting wisdom, if you desire what Proverbs tells you in the opening nine chapters is better than all the hidden treasures and you should search for it like it's a hidden treasure, then you are starting to believe what is indeed one who fears the Lord would believe in their heart. We have to point people to wisdom. And the reason is we need to be men and women of virtue. Men and women being formed in character and value inwardly. And getting possessions outwardly doesn't do that. Desires oriented toward what is true and good and wise does that. Because you can be absolutely foolish and highly rebellious against the Lord and have a lot of material possessions. Here, the desire... For wisdom is the kind of thing that affects and shapes the heart and mind. And that is necessary as we grow, isn't it? Because life doesn't get easier. In fact, we face all manner of temptations and difficulties the older we get and the more responsibilities we acquire. So how much better to get wisdom than gold? How old is this young man Solomon is writing to? Well, he's talking to his son in the home. So he is talking to someone of the a youthful generation where he is hoping for many long years and decades ahead of this person that they might grow in wisdom. We might say from our perspective, we need to get wisdom and as quickly as possible if we were to be young, older than this kind of youth in view. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. In verse 17... The path of the wise, meaning that once you get wisdom, once you're getting understanding, what is the, the kind of life that a heart of wisdom begins to live out? So verses 16 and 17 are connected like this. The value of wisdom is highlighted in verse 16. Here's the resulting life that believes verse 16. Verse 17 says, the highway of the upright turns aside from evil. As you get wisdom and as you get understanding, you will be able to look at temptation and sin and say, that's evil. I don't want to do what is evil. 
I don't want to choose what is wicked. I don't want to live for and cultivate and facilitate with others wickedness. The highway of the upright, meaning their path here, turns aside from evil. Some commentators have described this kind of highway as the thing that leads you away from dangerous areas in actual ancient Near Eastern roads. A highway, you didn't just have these a dime a dozen like you do in the United States. You open up a road map and oh my goodness, you know, when's the last time, honestly, you opened up a road map? Let's be honest. (laughs) We use phones all the time. But back when we opened road maps, you can look at all of the expanse of these systems like blood vessels all around the country. And you have all of these highways and interstates. That was not the way things looked in the days of this writer. There were some roads that were paved and worked upon to be heavily traveled upon, and it was like a highway. And that kept you from more dangerous, ensnaring places. Those ensnaring places here are pictured with the word evil. In verse 17, the highway of the upright turns aside from evil. The highway of the upright is the life lived pursuing God and submitting to his word. That's what the life of the upright lives like. You see the upright here, they're, they're not sinless, are they? No, they're not. The upright are those who have trusted the Lord and he's their refuge. If the Lord is your refuge, you are among the upright. If your desire is to grow in wisdom and to fear the Lord, then you are the upright on a highway, so to speak, this path of of life, your words, your actions, your steps, and it is turning you aside from evil. You would have to forsake the path of God's word and wisdom in order to go and live in evil. This highway keeps you from it, turns you from it. You have a responsibility here. In other words, this is not a life where you are passive and you're kind of disengaged like someone in the backseat in a highway uh, or a car on a highway and you're just being taken along and you're just receiving every turn and every stop and all the rest because you're not the one at the wheel. In verse 17, whoever guards his way preserves his life. Where's your responsibility in this? Verse 17 tells us you're on a highway and the path turns from evil. What's your responsibility? To keep your feet on the path then. To keep your feet on the path. To guard your way. We get the uh, importance of this when we think about, uh, um, you know, if you think about your uh, driver's tests and uh, getting your license for the first time. Some of you in this room don't have a license yet. You're going to have to go through this. And, uh, and it can be an intimidating experience being behind that wheel and the responsibilities on you as you're making this turn and going this way and the implications that follow. <laughs> Having to be aware of what will keep yourself safe and not put anybody else in danger as well. It's a way of guarding your way and preserving your life. Now that analogy serves to try to make this larger point in verse 17 that you have to assume spiritual responsibility for your life in what you pursue and choose to do. You can't just point to others around you and their failings and their difficulties and say, well, you know, the the reason that I'm living this way is because of people who are not me and the decisions that they have made. I understand life is complicated and we are downstream from decisions others have made before us. There comes a time where we must, in our maturity and pursuit of wisdom, recognize I must take the good of my soul into account. 
I must think on and meditate on the word of God and seek to look at the way I'm on so that I am on this path, this highway of the upright that turns from evil. And I want to preserve my life in that way. This is not Solomon's way of saying he doesn't believe that, you know, the Lord Jesus holds us fast. I think you can preach Proverbs 16, verse 17 and sing, he will hold me fast all in the same service. I mean, we didn't do that tonight. That wasn't by design. In verse 17, we are recognizing the spiritual responsibility he's placing on the image bearer because we have choices and we're responsible for them. And guarding his way, preserving his life, it's a way of saying your life matters, friend. Your life matters. And you shouldn't take your life lightly that you would think you are invincible or nothing bad could happen to you or to anyone else in your care. You should think, all right, my life matters. My life in fearing the Lord is on the path of the upright. And that guides me away from evil. So I want to preserve that direction. I want to keep my feet going on that path. To guard means to watch over diligently. What should be the posture spiritually of our eyes upon our heart? A diligence. A diligence. That's the diligent posture he has in mind. That we should be intensely invested in the good and state of our souls. We also guard what is valuable. We know what that's like. So to guard something is to recognize its importance. And the path and steps we are on are viewed with great importance by the scriptures. And we treat other things of great value and importance in ways that seek to preserve and care for them. You've done this if you've ever needed to move from one location to another. You come come upon things that need to be handled with care. Or something that has been given to you as a gift that you say, well, I'm just not going to put this on the lowest position in the home. This is going to go higher in order to put things out of reach, perhaps, for smaller hands. And in order to preserve it or to guard it. The same imagery of watchfulness is used in verse 17 here. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. Well, let's, let's rearrange some of the language in the form of a question. Don't you want to preserve your life? Don't you want to take the good of your soul into account? Then that means you must consider the steps and decisions and words in play in your life right now in time and space. Right now, a live consideration of where your steps are. In Isaiah 35 verse 8, the writer speaks of a highway, a way of holiness. In Isaiah 35, 8, a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. Why will the unclean not pass over it? It's not just about ritual impurity there. Their uncleanness, contrasted with this way of holiness, is about one whose refuge is God. And those who are the unclean are viewed here in the spiritual sense, those who are in rebellion against God. They don't fear the Lord, so they're not upon this highway. Their path is not the path of life. What is their path? Well, it's the alternative. The alternative path is the path of destruction. The path that foolish people choose. The decision by decision and placement of one foot after another, they are going down the way of destruction and responsible for their choices. Knowing verse 17, 
that the highway of the upright turns aside from evil. And knowing verse 16, that wisdom and understanding is better than gold and silver. This should affect the way we mentor. It should affect the way we disciple. It should affect the way we parent. It should affect the way we teach. It should affect the way we dialogue with our friendships and co-workers. Recognizing that wisdom is what is best. And that means our instincts aren't always the barometer here, are they? They have to be informed and shaped by the word of God. And outside wisdom from the people of God. So that we recognize something more than my heart must lead me. But what about the path of the fool? What about those who reject the highway of the upright? Those who do not turn aside from evil. Those who do not guard their way. Well, in verse 18, they are not humbly submitting themselves to God. They are the self-exalting proud. What's in store for them? Verse 18 goes with this unit, doesn't doesn't it? Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride and a haughty spirit are a way of talking about the internal disposition of the person. What's this person's posture toward the Lord? They do not depend on the Lord. They do not trust and hope in Christ. They are not looking to the gospel and receiving Christ in faith. Their heart is proud and haughty. You say, well, wait a second. Don't we continue to struggle with pride and the ongoing need to walk humbly before God? That's not what this verse is about. Verse 18 is talking about the spiritual state of one's heart. This is not about just an ongoing battle with sin and pride. This is talking about the heart that prefers the way of the darkness and wickedness. And in verse 18, judgment or destruction is in view. The word destruction is actually an image of shattering bones, which is a little unsettling if you've ever shattered one. You, uh, you definitely don't have only a picture in mind, but the experience in mind in that case. It, it has in mind to destroy by shattering. Think of your life then, guarding your way, something careful uh, that needs to be done, something valuable that needs to be guarded, and yet foolishness. Treating one's life lightly in rebellion in the pursuit of sin. A shattering is what you would expect. When something so important and so fragile like our lives is foolishly, haphazardly handled. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Does it make you think of Genesis 3? In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve eat of this fruit, of the tree of which God had said to them, you shall not eat of this fruit, and in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the tempter comes to Eve, and then Eve taking the fruit gives some to her husband also. In eating, they fall. Surely we can say, yes, verse 18 here is true. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And back in Genesis 3, pride went before a fall. A catastrophic one indeed. The warning about destruction is not meant just to be the observation. What's the takeaway? What's the application here in verse 18? Well, if the observation is pride goes before destruction, then I need to submit myself to the Lord to openly receive into my heart and mind His Word so that I can receive instruction and wisdom to grow and live for His glory and a fear and reverence for the Lord so that I'm not living as if I'm to be the self-exalting image bearer. It means, therefore, don't pursue pride. Walk humbly before God. I think that looks like, in one case, uh, in, in our lives, devotionally, I think it looks like opening the Word of God It looks like coming before the word of God in prayer. And we say, Lord, I pray that my heart would be humble and open before you. 
That as I read and meditate upon your word, you would move upon my heart by your Holy Spirit and continue to teach me and guide me as I trust you. I think it also looks like connecting with the people of God. That we recognize we're not just individuals, me and Jesus, but we've been grafted into a body of Christ. And so we say, Lord, not only do I want to submit myself to your word, I want with the people of God to walk as pilgrims on this narrow way, heading not to destruction, but to life and everlasting life indeed. A haughty spirit goes before a fall. So we want to submit ourselves to the word of God and know that everything God's word tells us we need, we need. In verse 19, the imagery of pride and humility continues. And it ends our passage tonight. Verse 19 is another better statement. It is better to be of lowly spirit. That's the, that's the humility part. Having a lowly spirit. That's contrasted in verse 18 with the haughty spirit. So we're going to see how these verses fit together. The logic of them. In verse 18, a haughty spirit. Verse 19, a lowly spirit. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. All right, so verse 18 mentioned pride and a spirit. In verse 19, we have pride but an opposite spirit. Lowly. But... Just like the better than statement in verse 16, the writer's going to complicate things for you. Because if he just put out two options and he said, my son, is it better to be with the poor or better to be with those who can divide the spoil? And dividing the spoil is imagery of victory. It's some sort of conquering that has taken place. Enemies have been defeated. Resources have been absorbed. Dividing the spoil or the riches is something that they would do. Do you want to be among the conquering? You want to be among those victors? That's who, that's who would be dividing the spoil. And his son might say, well, indeed, Lord, we would not want to be those enemies overthrown. We would want to be the victor. He would say, well, now here's how I'm going to complicate it. What if, what if the lowly spirit is the one with the poor and the proud is among those who divide the spoil? Now which is better? We're pressing the logic here beyond the material, aren't we? We're looking now at what is non-material. And what's non-material behind this is the inner disposition of the person. A lowly spirit dependent on the Lord. And that may mean that being dependent on the Lord leads you to avoid ways of evil that might enrich yourself at the expense of others. It might look like avoiding wicked schemes of wealth building and oppression. It might look like receiving less materially because you are depending on the Lord and trusting him and not the worldly ways of trying to gain as much as you can, as quickly as you can, for as long as you can. But the proud, the wicked, well, we know in the book of Proverbs, their strategies of gaining wealth and possession are at the expense of loving their neighbor. We saw earlier in chapter 16, for example, that in verse 11, a just balance and scales are the Lord's. And in verse 13, righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. Wicked scales, unrighteous and unjust measurements, and wicked words and schemes can gain you wealth. But that would, be, that would mean you're willing to divide the spoil with the proud. You're willing to put yourself above all. You're willing to exalt yourself in your heart and to follow those desires of covetousness and envy and greed. 
He says, here's the non-material better. In verse 19, the non-material better item is not not a proud spirit, but a lowly spirit. In Proverbs, what's a lowly spirit? A lowly spirit isn't just someone who would be kind or compassionate. We're talking about a heart's position toward the Lord, the fruit of which we would long to be expressed in kindness and gentleness and compassion and the fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists in Galatians 5. But it's going to be rooted in one's heart toward God. That's what it means to have a lowly spirit here. To have a lowly spirit is to be humble before the Lord. And that means we say to the Bible, you are right. We say to the words of the Lord and the instructions and wisdom of Scripture, you know what is best for my heart. And we don't want to live deceived. We we don't want to live self-deluded. And we don't want to be those who refuse instruction. We want to welcome wisdom being lowly in spirit. Someone who is proud doesn't want anyone speaking instruction or guidance into their lives. They want to be left alone. A lowly spirit says, I don't want to be left alone. I need you to help me. Help me, Bible. Help me, Lord. Help me, fellow Christians. Help me. Help me be guided. Help me think well. Help me pursue what is good and true. What do you see that I don't see? Lowly spirits think like that that is not spiritual weakness humility before God is strength before God it's a paradox it's a paradox in in the worldly perspective it doesn't look impressive what looks impressive are those who push themselves forward to the front of the line and they look super powerful and super strong and super intimidating and the world says look at them But where does the proud path lead? Well, we've got to read verse 19 in light of verse 18. If the path of the self-exalting is destruction, then their short-term gain is just that. Their temporary strategy of sin is ultimately a losing strategy. In, In other words, what's best for your life is not a strategy shaped by sin. What is best for your heart and what is best for your life and best for your household and best for your relationships is for your heart to be shaped by the word and promises of God that you believe what the Bible says. That would mean that you are the lowly in spirit. And blessed are the meek, Jesus said, for they're going to inherit the earth. In other words, think long term. And I don't just mean in terms of decades. I mean in terms of millennia. And millions of years. Billions of years. Think about the age that is to come. Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? In the end, because the non-material component is the key in Jesus' teaching, it's like the echoing of Proverbs, isn't it? The answer to Jesus' question would be, it doesn't ultimately profit a man to lose his soul. In order to gain the world. It would be a failure to rightly evaluate and conclude what is better. May we be those who believe the Bible. That it's better to get wisdom than gold. And to get understanding that is chosen at the expense of all the world's shining silver. We would have what moth and rust cannot destroy. Because we have Christ. And in Christ... Paul says in Colossians, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So let us trust and pursue Christ as our heart's treasure. Let's pray.